0: I made a conscious decision one night, it just really hit me like I'm not that person. That's not my life right now. And it's okay for me to just let it go.
1: Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball Textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or for folks who want to develop their own fonts and letter forms for the screen or relief printed work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball Textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' work, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Annalise Kratovich. This is Annalise's second appearance on the podcast, so if you want to prep for this chat, go back and listen to episode 27 way back when the podcast was called Pine Copper Line. In this episode, she speaks candidly about the recent and serious health challenges she's faced, what this means when you're a working artist, and her experience going through all of this in the depth of the pandemic. We also talk about making art as a daughter of Ukrainian immigrants in a time of war, and how she finds strength and a passion for her work during all of these turbulent times. So, without further ado... Sit back, relax, and prepare to get current with Annalise Gratovich. Hi Annalise, how are you doing? Hi
0: Miranda. I'm doing great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad that we're getting to connect again. We're talking a little bit off-air, how we are always seeing each other just in these moments of these print gatherings where we're about our business in those moments, and we just get to connect and say hello. And that's kind of it. But I always appreciate catching up with you. And I'm looking forward to using this as an excuse for a little deep dive on what you've been up to.
0: I think that's great. Yeah, I've been super excited to do this. And I'm like, not even nervous.
1: Awesome. <laughs> that's what we love to hear.
0: Yeah. Past the like butterflies you always give me, Miranda. Yeah.
1: But- <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> so you were a very early adopter of the Hello Print Friend once Pine Copper Lime. You're mm-hmm. in the double digits. You're in episode 27. Mm-hmm. And that's the time when we really got to do a deep dive on what brought you to printmaking all of that. So if anyone wants that background or just wants a whole through line of Annalise's story, you can start there. But just... Maybe give a little introduction of yourself for people who aren't going to go back to the early days of bad mic quality on my end, and just say who you are, where you are, what you do.
0: Yes. Okay. So I'm Annalise Kartovich. I am based in Austin, Texas, where I work at the Blanton Museum in the Prints and Drawings Department. I'm the works on paper preparator there, and I also have my studio at a center called Canopy, where I now have my very own press, which I'm very excited about, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. And I think that's about it in a nutshell. I specialize in woodcuts and etchings, and I have lately, over the past few years, started doing more collage work with the materials that I create in my studio, and I think that about covers it
1: for my practice. Beautiful. (laughs) So I was going back and preparing for our chat. And I realized that the last time we spoke was November 2019. Yes. So like, literally, the last time the world was normal at all. Mm. (laughs) Like, that's what I felt like.
0: Yes, right. So it was like, we
1: we spoke And and then everything, then the time-space continuums, tour, and we got the shitty timeline, like not the good timeline.
0: Yeah. Why Um, did we end up on this, on this crazy timeline? I think often, I think so much about that.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe Mm -hmm. us talking again, we'll put it back together. Maybe it was us.
0: (laughs) Maybe it was us. We need to, yeah, figure out somewhere in the podcast equation, how we just bump it all back.
1: Totally. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about so from like November 2019 to March 2023, mm-hmm. I feel like for most people, it counts for at least like seven, maybe eight years. But I think maybe even for you, possibly even more. <laughs> um, We've all done some rough living, but you've had quite an arc as well. And so... I don't know, maybe we could just start there is that as things started to get crazy for you, what was that like? Like the, the beginning of even more political madness, not that this country's ever really been without it. And then also the pandemic and that time for you.
0: Yeah. So I guess a good way to, to introduce where I am now, I, so I, I went through this crazy illness Mm-hmm. At people close in my life, and then following some, some crowdfunded support, a broader network became aware of, but I went through this, this crazy sick period, which upended every single aspect of my life and didn't know if I was going to make it through it. And that was happening on and off throughout the pandemic. And it mm-hmm. was bewildering. And and we all have this sense of lost time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're just like this little stone that has skipped through the river of life or whatever. And now here we are on the other side. But I, I refer to this time now really as my second life in mm. so many ways. And also because I am so lucky to still be here. I was approved for hospice on two separate occasions during Mm. my illness and extensive hospitalizations and lost a lot. And I'm very fortunate to now be on the other side of that and to be working. And in the past couple of months, make it back into my studio and my practice and resume the big series that we talked about in the first, first podcast, But yeah, the the pandemic time was very crazy. And I keep thinking too, like pandemic is portal. Like Mm -hmm. Joy says, Mm -hmm. you know, she made a print about that. And it really was a very transformative time in many different ways for so many people and transitory in a sense of there being so much destruction and how often that is needed for new life and new growth. And that's essentially where I feel I am now.
1: Mm-hmm. And and that's
0: it in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. 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 So at what point did you start to feel really unwell and kind of realize that something was like really wrong?
0: Yeah, it was crazy. So I ended up getting an autoimmune disease, which still is is pretty much undiagnosed. Like there mm-hmm. are ideas of what it could be and I'm on crazy immunosuppression and have been and I've been in remission now since the summer of last year, which is incredible. And that seems to be holding well, which is really exciting. So in the beginning of the pandemic, we were all sent home and things were crazy. It was like touch and go. There was the survival aspect of that and trying to figure out what was going on and how to stay safe and keep everyone safe. And I was doing a lot of cooking and gardening and cycling and working from home and my employer really kind of um, facilitated flexible work schedules very well for those of us who have positions that are tied to the museum, those of us who handle the objects in the museum. So we were one of the first crews back in about July of 2020, but we had a, a few months of flexible schedules. And Man, I, I think of that time, I'm extremely fortunate to think of of the time that I had at home as just being so, so wonderful, and despite the the hardship of of the pandemic that we were all living through. And I think part of that, I have this rosy memory of it too, because later mm-hmm. I was very violently, unexpectedly pulled from my home mm-hmm. because I, I got very ill. And that hit me kind of like a freight train. I mean, I, I started cycling a lot. I used to bike a lot in college and then got too busy for it. And then when streets were empty, I I would just ride my bike everywhere and I'd ride to my studio and I loved it. And I would get up and I, and and in my peak, I was biking like 50 miles in a day. Like it was, it was just a nice morning ride. And then, yeah, by that summer I started encountering problems that I couldn't really figure out. Healthcare was incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, of
0: course, because of the pandemic, everything was slammed with with sick people needing help, and offices were slammed. And I had a hard time getting the care that I needed. By the fall of 2020, I was pretty sick, and mm-hmm. we had indicators in my blood work that it was my immune system, but couldn't really figure out why. And then it was real touch and go from from then on. I had to. I lost my ability to to live on my own. I had to move into my parents' home, and I was extremely fortunate to be able to do that. They live here close by. And I was on a reduced work schedule, so I was trying to work as much as I could. I couldn't make it into my studio at all. Um, I was seeing specialists, and I was in and out of the hospital about a week at a time. And I just continued getting sicker as we were trying to figure out what was going on. And I became extremely malnourished because I wasn't methylating nutrients in my food. So I was just starving quite literally to death while experiencing a lot of neurological problems and hormonal deficiencies and all these things that were just kind of cascading out of control. And after my first serious hospitalization, I had I hadn't been able to get into a hospital in Austin because it was full of covid. Mm-hmm. So they kind of treated me for my immediate symptoms. I would get these crazy dangerous fevers and I would be convulsing. And my blood pressure would be so low, I was a, a severe stroke risk. So they would just kind of make sure that they, in good conscience, could, could good conscience, could send me back out. So my mom would take me to the hospital, and then they would kind of patch me up as best they could after I was sitting in an ER full of COVID patients.
1: Yeah.
0: While I was on crazy immunosuppression, tons of steroids, I, they put me on a biologic pretty early. So that is a form of immunosuppression that's administered through an IV machine, kind of like chemo is. And those medications made me really ill. And so that was just life for a while. And that first hospitalization, that was pretty crazy because I I was so sick at that point that I I don't have much recollection of that Mm. time. I kind of remember being in the hospital and being turned away. And then my doctor saw me the next day and they were like, she she should be in a hospital. We need to find a hospital that will take her. So I ended up going to a hospital outside of town and was pretty incoherent the first few days. And by the time I was out of there, I was in a wheelchair and I weighed less than a hundred pounds. And this was all in the matter of five months. You know, this happened incredibly quickly and I've always thought of the human body as something that is so resilient and it really is. But when this perfect storm of systems kind of starts to malfunction and Mm -hmm. miscommunicate, there's this cascade effect that can just like, it's like a stack of cards or dominoes being knocked over. And to be in the midst of something like that is just in retrospect, really crazy. When it's happening, you're just in survival mode, and you're yeah. trying to just like figure it out. And it's one step in front of the next. It's one one breath, and then the other. And it was like that for for quite some time. Yeah, yeah.
1: When you think about it, and you think about the people that are going through something like that, I might have thought like, oh, like maybe this was triggered by extreme stress from the pandemic, because so many people were not dealing with it well. And so it's really remarkable to hear the narrative that's like you actually were kind of someone who was living her best 50 mile or 50 miles a day life in the Mm -hmm. pandemic. And Mm -hmm. so just in terms of, and I know this is never, never really a satisfying answer, particularly with autoimmune conditions. Did you get any sense of, of what triggered it for you or, or anything like that? So yeah, we think it, it it was probably a combination
0: of things, but we still don't really know. Mm-hmm. We don't have much familial medical history and yeah. for reasons that we discussed in our first podcast, you know. So as far as we know, autoimmunity doesn't run in my family, but there can be outside factors or internal stressors that can mm-hmm. cause something like this to happen. Yeah. Um. And it's quite possible that there was a culmination of of things. The time before the pandemic was not quite easy for me. That was a huge time of transition in my life Mm -hmm. that was incredibly difficult. And I tried to stay very focused throughout that time. And also my entire life, I've been like a chronic (laughs) overworker. Like when I was working in publishing, I would have my day job and then I would go home and eat and then go back to the print shop where I could self-publish and print my work. And I'd work until midnight or two or three. And then that was my life when I was in the print shop in the weekends. Like I was constantly working multiple jobs and then working on my own career. So we don't have satisfactory answers for that, Mm -hmm. which is one thing that is so frustrating. And one thing that makes treatment so hard too Because like with autoimmunity too, there's like a list of symptoms, right? And so the doctors are going to be like, well, here are these symptoms. Let's throw these medications at it and see what sticks. But the medications are expensive.
1: Yeah.
0: They have horrible side effects. The, the, the worst side effect of the one I'm on now is cancer. So I have to go through a lot of additional cancer screenings, and I'm, mm-hmm. I have to be very mindful of that. But I don't get as sick from this medication as I did the other medications that didn't work for me. And so that's incredibly stressful. But yeah, we we don't we don't really know. And it kind of brings to light what a mystery really the human body continues yeah. to be and what health continues to be and the the, the correlation of mental and emotional health was with, with physical health. And the factors of our, just our daily lives and how all of these things create this very holistic picture that, that can be very hard to, it it can be very hard to pick specific pieces of that out to try to diagnose it. And that was my experience that like, nobody could really tell me what was going on, Mm -hmm. but we had these classes of medications that we could try, but that takes months. And so it was like, okay, well, let's try this first class of medication. It didn't work. I'd get sicker. I'd be in the hospital. Okay, let's change to this medication. I'd do those infusions and I'd have to wait. Didn't work. I'd be even sicker back in the hospital. It was just this cycle that was pretty crazy. And a note about, about it being horrible timing during the pandemic. I think it was was bad timing, but it was also good timing. And I feel like very strange about it because on one hand, like I realized after the fact with my doctor, a lot of my emotional distress, once I reached remission, I had a whole lot of mental and emotional problems that we've been having to treat. And I'm in clinical treatment for PTSD right now. Mm I've been treated for anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder. And a lot of that, it it didn't like I completely forgot when I was in the hospital, I was in a COVID ward every single time for yeah. for weeks at a time in in the COVID ward because that's where the beds would would come available. And that was terrifying. And I I I'm on immunosuppression, I'm really ill, and I'm fully conscious that there are people dying around me. They're they're what's happening around you in a hospital. And those were things that I that I completely forgot about in that survival mode that I mentioned that now I'm having to really unpack with my doctors and and discuss and come to terms with in my in my various treatment plans. So that was very hard and getting adequate medical care and attention was very difficult and in a time when Everything was so immediate when a global pandemic, everyone's trying to, to just figure things out. And as strains are developing, trying to figure out how to protect people and treat people properly or not is mm-hmm. the case that we saw in so many situations, unfortunately. But then at the same time, I, <laughs> I feel, I still feel incredibly selfish to say this, but the, the whole world slowed down with me. Mm. you know, and I think it allowed me to approach my illness and loss of ability and mobility and loss of health and creativity and ability to work. All of this, you know, was kind of grinding to a halt, but the whole world was experiencing that with me Mm -hmm. and it made it possible for kind of a shared understanding that I think really helped in my treatment on, personal, on a personal level, you know, yeah. within my family, within my friends, within my, my social group and my community, because we were all going through this crazy thing. And my crazy thing didn't seem that much crazier than everybody else's crazy mm-hmm. thing, you know, which I think really helped me. Because it yeah. wasn't something that I was just living through, even though it was, I was very secluded and couldn't have visitors. And sure, yeah. it was it was really hard to, to go through it, so isolated. But at the same time, I had that camaraderie of all the people that I knew. At the same time, we're going through similar things.
1: That's It's really interesting to hear you say it, because one of the things I've thought about a bit in preparation for this is is that I feel like I have some sense of what it's like to have my life just going along all these plans for the future, all these different things. I have to do this. I have to do that just completely in that narrative and then have it just grind to a halt. Mm -hmm. And because I experienced the global pandemic Mm -hmm. And I almost wondered if that was an offensive analogy to make to someone who was truly sick during it. I think speaking to that little slice of empathy, that little window that people may be able to have Mm -hmm. into what you went through of just like, nobody knows right now what tomorrow is. Nobody Mm -hmm. knows if they're going to be able to pick up on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of, as you say, the timing, that makes total sense that there would be more energetic understanding of what you were experiencing, even if nobody truly knows that experience other than you. I mean, illness is so deeply, deeply personal in our experience of it is. And, and as you spoke to isolating, but yeah, I, I also was thinking like, yeah, I think I have a little slice of like what that might've been like, because everything, everyone's world was turned upside down and you were all in the upside down together. Mhm.
0: That's it exactly. Like it in in various degrees and different ways. It's something that we all share. And like I don't know, I'm I'm 33 now and yeah, I'm like, man, I I lost those couple years, you know, mm-hmm. I really feel that and like I had goals that and and places that I wanted to be, as I'm sure we all did. And I've, I've had this conversation with some of my friends where like, okay, we're still in this pandemic. We're told things are back to normal and things should be fine now. And we're kind of working through the cognitive dissonance of that. But mm-hmm. also there's this shared idea that I keep hearing that like, yeah, we lost, we lost this time and we're behind. And mm-hmm. I keep hearing like, I feel behind. I feel like I'm, I'm behind where I wanted to be or where I should be. And that was one thing that was so hard for me too, because before I got really sick, I was able to acquire my printing press and I signed a lease on a studio space that I was so excited about and had huge plans for it. And then throughout the course of my illness, I had to make a really conscious decision, which is something we can also talk about if you want to, but this very conscious decision to let go of my work and let go of the the pressure and expectation from my previous life that i just couldn't hold anymore in mm-hmm. in my illness and part of that too was this plan and dream of the studio that I wanted to build and that I had begun building. And as a printmaker, our equipment is not mobile or it's not inexpensive. And signing a lease is fair. Signing a contract, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into putting a shop together. So I'm, I I still feel like, oh, man, I'd be so much farther ahead. If I, right.
1: You know, yeah, of course. Of course. I had but...
0: gotten sick. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it's yeah. it's hard to make that adjustment to I'm actually right where I'm supposed to be because this mm-hmm. is where I am. Exactly. But I definitely know that feeling. Because, yeah, I yeah. did I did want to ask what that experience was like as someone who not only is a creative person and an artist and a creator, but someone who lived the 6 a.m. to midnight life of a creative person. So like yeah. that real – high output, high ambition, very, I feel like squeaky clean. It would be like something I associate with Annalise just because like whenever I see you, you've got a great outfit on and all your work (laughs) is just printed perfectly and it's just arranged beautifully. And it just seems so intentional and controlled and like someone who is on her game and then have to say like, okay, this is not the path I can be on right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I remember there was a there was a, a specific night when, first of all, thank you for, oh. <laughs> for that as somebody who lives the the behind the scenes like constant mess and chaos of <laughs> balancing a studio career and like another career and then trying to do the things we all want to do in our lives. I'm I'm glad I can. I can seem presentable.
1: (laughs) More than presentable, yes.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I remember I was really struggling to keep up with some deadlines. And at that point, my practice was, I don't think I realized it at the time, but it was really just dragging me down. And Mm. I could not keep up. And I didn't have the same ability. I didn't have the same mobility. I didn't have the, I, I was not, I did not have a creative drive. And I was trying to stay on the, like trying to keep up the same workflow that I had had and try to meet my same deadlines. And I had Some exhibitions and some residencies that were kicked down the line in the beginning of the pandemic. And I was just like struggling so hard just to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it because Mm -hmm. if I do it, I know who I am. Right. right. I yeah. still have my identity and which is so tied up in my work and that's a whole other conversation of <laughs> how our identity is influenced by what we produce and and what we create especially as as creatives in this culture and society and economy. But I was I was trying so hard to hold on to that version of myself that I knew which was that person that could just push myself to work through anything yeah. to make make a deadline and get it done. And I made a conscious decision one night. It just really hit me. Like I'm not that person anymore. That's not my life right now. And it's okay for me to just let it go. And I just kept telling myself, just like, like open your hands, just let it go. Like you're the only person, like nobody cares, you know, yeah. <laughs> nobody really cares. like I'm the person that cares. Right. And it's like, if this is making me so miserable and if I realize I'm not this person anymore, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. Like, let me just, let me just shake off all of these expectations that I have for myself. Right. And let me focus on the one thing. That's going to allow me to maybe be able to do it all again in the future, which is
1: mm.
0: myself. And so I remember that night I was laying in bed and I was like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to get up and I'm going to send those emails that mm-hmm. I can, I'm going to pull out of these things. I'm going to say I hope to do it in the future if you if you consider having me back or talking about this later but I I can't do it right now. And that to that seems so obvious, right? It's like just just like lighten your load, right? Mm-hmm. But with my artistic practice and my creativity and how important my practice and my identity as a printmaker is, like that's all I've known my entire life. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that like anything else can come and go. But I know who I am through like my creative output oh, yeah. and the, the inspiration that I have and the drive. It's like, that's my internal conversation. It's always going. And when that part of myself is silent, I didn't know what to do. Mm. So that was hard. That was really hard. And I had to tell myself, instead of, instead of working on something outside of yourself, I need to work on, on what's inside myself. And I kind of became my project.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Your own work um, of art. Yeah. Which is, which, which is incredibly hard. And then there was, of course, a lot of like hard feelings, resentment and sometimes disgust and just just like lack of excitement and just living like the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, which was really and having the same problems. I mean, when I was when I was out of that hospital the first time in a wheelchair, like I couldn't walk. And then I as I mentioned, I wasn't getting nutrients from my food. So, I just like my body just deteriorated mm-hmm. and my mental state deteriorated, my cognitive ability deteriorated. I was dealing with They thought at one point I had RA, rheumatoid arthritis. I had like crazy joint pain and joints mm-hmm. swelling And this whole thing was incredibly painful. Like it's the most pain that hopefully I will ever be in, in my entire life. It was very, very difficult. And living moment to moment with a lot of physical pain is also very difficult, especially mm-hmm. when that pain really affects your mobility. And like my hands would swell up so badly. And there were times when like, I couldn't even write, like I would be shaking so much, like, I'd try to write a number or a letter or something and I would just make scribbles on a piece of paper. And then also they're that scary, right? Because, you know, I want to get back to the, to the person that I knew, right. Which is the person that could draw and make prints and carve and Mm -hmm. do that stuff. But anyway, I think I'm rambling
1: now. No, it's, it's, it's all amazing and interesting and, it's just as you're describing it, I just keep thinking, I mean, like, it sounds like like a fucking like witch's hex. Like it just sounds like like a curse. Like the I'm like 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 did you open a sarcophagus? Like it's I, just, it, I knew. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> because it's just the, the 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 experience of just having kind of as you said, the breakdown of all the systems. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it feels so much like like sometimes i think there's an ability to separate ourselves from our illnesses so if i if i break an arm it's like oh this arm hurts mm-hmm. this thing that's not my selfness is being affected by the vessel of my selfness mm-hmm. and your experience sounds so much more like your entire inside and out spirit and body were under siege essentially and that's just such a different experience of illness than I think most people experience until they're towards at the end of their life. And and I think, as you said, having been cleared for hospice, like you were experiencing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
0: I wish it were as cool as a witch's head. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds badass. But yes, it, it was very crazy. I learned very valuable lessons of having to separate myself from my work
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: also being able to come back to it as a new person, right? Yeah. And doing these new things, having new limitations. I, I think I, I mentioned it was so hard for me in that, in that transition period because I was fighting so hard with the person I used to be, right? not realizing, okay, I need to meet the person that I am. Mm-hmm. and once i was able to do that and build that relationship from the building blocks from the from the beginning it's made it possible for me to get where i am now and just to like begin drawing again in preparation mm-hmm. for it or yeah in in towards the end of my hospitalizations, I was well enough and feeling kind of creative enough to, to take some of my work. And my mom went to my studio mm. and she packed up some stuff for me. And I was able to sit in my hospital room and, and do these collage pieces that I would lay I remember out. those. Yeah. And then that that opened a lot of interesting conversations with my nurses and my doctors. who would come in. And then I was like, oh, this is nice again, right? Because there's like smart art in my life again. Mm-hmm. But- in the worst of it, I was totally prepared to just give it up because I didn't feel it. I had no spark Mm -hmm. and no desire and just didn't even, I was just like, okay, that's, that's not part of me anymore. So being able to, to build it up from the beginning and now be back in my studio and resuming my big series has made me
1: feel so happy. So, you know, what strikes me about your description of your first foray back into art making was not just that you were able to start making these images, these collages, but that it gave you that connection and that human experience of connecting with your caregivers. Mm -hmm. And because, of course, I think that art is so much about that, is about creating something that forms a bridge between the creator and the viewer and one person and another or even two people experiencing an art object that neither one of them made and i just think that there's a beautiful metaphor or thing to be said in there i guess about the the isolation of sickness and then being able to connect to your art again which then can kind of break through that i would hope and and start to Open up again a world in which you can walk among us, <laughs> literally. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's really the greatest thing about art, right? Is that it creates bridges, and it and it causes worlds to collide. So I ran into this friend outside of my studio. This morning, and we talked about just very briefly that idea of art opening pathways and, and fostering conversation and that that's really the the kind of art that we're drawn to. Mm. And that's always been the case for me. And my, my work really did function that way when I was first able to get back to it. And I did have this goal in my studio. We do this this all of Austin does East Austin studio tour and Austin studio tour in general, where different parts of the city, all these artists open up and their community events, exhibitions. And so I really had a goal like, okay, once I got that spark back, I was like, "I want to open my studio and i want to and I want to mm. do this." I was in the hospital until three days before East. Oh and gosh. so that's when I first was like piddling with these collages, and I was stuck I was stuck in my room, but I had the wherewithal to be able to lay in bed and work with my hands or sit under the window or whatever. So I got out, and then my mom helped me put these shelves together and mm. kind of rearrange my studio and I was able to open up for that first weekend and talk to people and it was amazing. It was kind of this like flashback of the life that I had before I got sick, you know, and and how much I love sharing work with people and talking to people about art and people who are coming out to see the arts in, in Austin and really wanting in this event to engage with people and then immediately after that weekend, I was back in the hospital, I had to skip the second weekend, but it was like that seed, right? That mm-hmm. it was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is really who I want to be. And now that I let that go, that's what I really want to fight for, to be that person again. And yeah, I'm really excited to, to be, as I have said, working, working on this new figure in my series, continuing my series, but this figure is the healer. Mm-hmm. which i it was my idea to do a healer and a fool to wrap up this series of of large woodcuts but i don't think i could have done it the right way i don't think i could have made these pieces the right way without going through this crazy illness and crazy time of survival mm-hmm. and almost losing everything and then coming back and i'm not saying like there's no way i can put all of that into these pieces but it's like it's kind of like a like a profound art therapy for me, coming back to this and physically carving these ideas into this woodcut. Okay. I think it's going to be much more profound to me than it is to anybody else, given the circumstances. But it feels good.
1: Well, and also, I, I do believe that yeah. you you never know what comes through mm-hmm. in a work. You never know what you imbue into what you make that... Is there just below the surface that our non-cognitive forms of communication pick up on? Mm-hmm. I do believe in that idea of like the aura of art and, and our intentions project onto things and mm-hmm. as woo as that might sound that's the magic
0: of it I that's totally it. I totally believe that I, mm-hmm. I know that there's something that we can't put our fingers on right and mm-hmm. or describe accurately and the subjectivity of art or just the emotion like I think we've all stood in front of a piece of artwork and have just left yes or heard something that just like destroys us mm-hmm. in the most beautiful profound way and those are things that are deeply personal, mm-hmm. right? And and it's not necessarily coming from from the artist, right? I don't think. I think it's I think it's something much greater than that. I think mm-hmm. there's like a real magic in in creating something that people can can come to and share in and take what they can from it.
1: Absolutely. Like I I when I went to Padua and I saw Giotto's Cathedral, mm-hmm. it's climate controlled you can only be in i think for 10 15 minutes something like that and then they put the next group in and i was crying so hard in that cathedral that i was shaking like it, mm-hmm. i can still get teared up when i talk about it and i'm not catholic i wasn't raised christian like i have no i mean it's 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 a cathedral so obviously it's these scenes from the life of christ mm-hmm. i've studied renaissance art i've seen countless images but there was something about that place And whether it was Giotto and his team themselves or picking up on, as you say, the effect that it's had on all of these visitors, it's one of the really earliest examples of what we think of as, of Renaissance art. I I think it's from the early 15th century. So it's quite early on in that artistic tradition of showing human emotion. And it's, It's still one of the most profound art experiences slash any experience of my life. And so I know exactly what you mean about like just having something sweep you up for maybe no particular reason other than it's plugging you in to that, which we cannot put our finger on Mm -hmm. that I think art and artists are searching for and, it's never gonna be universal. Not one piece is gonna ever do it for each person, but it's it's all this vibrating coils of the universe lining up right sometimes and making it happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's it, exactly. <laughs> and so I wanna make sure that we have time to talk about Hilo Print Co. Because I was I was so so happy when you came up and you gave me a sticker for that because like i said i'd known a little bit of your story and i i followed on on social media and i just it just was such it just <laughs> it just felt like such a hopeful act from someone who i know who had had really done the hell and back route and so it just i loved it i was just like this is exactly the kind of thing I want to see in the world. And so please talk about it. I don't know. I don't have to talk about my experience of you starting a, a print shop, but it just, I, I just love it. I love that it exists. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah, this, I, I and I also, I, I also want to just take a moment to say when, when I've talked about illness, I talk about the isolation and, and the work and healing and all of that, but I cannot begin to express how amazed I am and the gratitude that I have for the people that caught me mm-hmm. in the time when I fell from everything. And that was family. That was friends. That was printmakers. I know printmakers I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And just people in my community that, that just – really acts of kindness and generosity saved my life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And all of these things came together. And part of that was was also my press acquisition. Mm-hmm. I had been looking for my own press for a long time. And I'm very particular. I had things that I, that I really wanted and was looking for in a press. I wanted all solid steel, no tubular rollers, because I like to, to use a ton of pressure on my etchings. And I was, through the grapevine, put in touch with the man who, who had the, the press that I ended up buying and a friend of mine got me in touch with a a patron of the arts who wanted to help me with that acquisition. Mm. So that whole thing came together through community and printmakers always have this thing, like your press finds you, right? It's like a straight cat, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) a straight straight animal. Like you get adopted by your press, but that's really what happened with, with me. And I always kind of had a belief in that. Like if I just wait, if I, if I just keep, looking and I keep letting people know that I'm looking, eventually I'm going to find the perfect press. And I did. And then somebody helped me buy it and move it here. And yeah, I kind of knew from the beginning, like high, low print co I wanted, I wanted that to be in the name. And I'm still in the process of getting my studio up and running in earnest. I've done a lot of printing on my press and have ideas for how I want to develop my studio practice to be more of like a self-contained, self-sufficient business outside of just my my creative practice. I want to mm-hmm. make it a bit more business official and like have high, low print co and have regular print releases and continue like my tiered pricing system mm-hmm. for work. And I have all these things that I want to accomplish business-wise and I'm thrilled that and the potential for that. And I love having a physical space that I can open up and invite people to love merch. I love print merch. So I'm super stoked about all the print merch. (laughs) When I went to see this press, I took a road trip to Indiana and went through Nashville, and got to see, of course, Hat Show Print. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the printers there and commissioned a letterpress poster for the establishment of my press, which then, for all these reasons, I had to put on hold and, and kind of delay the debut for a while. But I want to do like a poster, a commemorative poster with them, maybe every five years or something. Oh, every 10 awesome. Years yeah. Print Co. But yeah, that's, that's that about the press
1: that's super exciting we don't have too much time left Mm -hmm. but we've done pandemic we've done your illness and then there's of course the war on ukraine Mm. which talking about the shitty timeline that we're on (laughs) that -hmm. just seemed to that seemed to happen you know I, i would imagine particularly from your point of view on the heels of not only us being able to gather together safely and you, mm-hmm. particular being able to gather people safely. Mm-hmm. So, and then we we get the news about the invasion. And I guess I don't necessarily even have a question, but more of like a, a just a, a I've been thinking about you and and your family. And is there anything, particularly, that you want to say about it or how it's been? affecting you as a creative person or a personal person or just kind of like give you some space to talk about it if you want to.
0: My heart really goes out to everybody
1: that Mm -hmm. is
0: involved and war is horrible. And I have family in both places. I have family in Ukraine. I have family in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And of course, I love them all dearly. And people are the foot soldiers of any war, of course, yeah. it affects people terribly. And that being said, I can't, I can't equate what Russian people are going through with what Ukrainian people are going through because houses are being demolished. Schools are being demolished. People's communities are being destroyed. There's a refugee crisis And I don't. I also don't just want to say war is terrible, but it's hard. It's hard for me to to speak about this in absolutes because Mm -hmm. I, like I say, I have family in both places, Mm -hmm. as many Russians do, as many Ukrainians do, and so the conflict is is very complex, and I think across the board, nationalism is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. And we see that here in the United States as well. And I think also the United States has has a vested interest to oppose Russia with everything they can Mm -hmm. (laughs) and ideas, greater ideas of capitalism versus communism. And there's just such a complex history in the region and a complex history with our, our nation's, so i i wasn't I wasn't prepared to to make a statement, and yeah. I don't know. How I, I don't know if if I am if I'm comfortable with what I with mm-hmm. what I said, but it's on my mind constantly. Yeah. And as somebody who draws so much inspiration from from the arts of the region, and of course, considering my family. I, I just, I, I hope, I hope it's, it's over quickly. I hope it, I hope it can end soon. And I hope that rebuilding efforts can begin soon. I hope people can go home. I hope people can reconnect with their families and their communities and can, can heal from the loss of their loved ones. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't want this episode to be at all. Like, let's talk about all the hard things that have happened to Annalise since we last (laughs) talked. But it also didn't seem appropriate not to acknowledge it, not just because because of your personal and familial connection, but it's in your art. And the idea of displacement from the Ukraine is part and parcel to the images that you create. And so it just seemed... like it wouldn't be good to not ask about it or not to at least give you some space to reflect if you wanted to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate that because yes, that occurred to me. And I thought, should I, should I prepare something to say? Should I not? I, of course don't want to be like a, a a spokesperson Mm -hmm. or somebody who, It comes across as somebody who feels like they know what they're talking (laughs) about.
1: You're like, as a geopolitical PhD, like, here's my hot take. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. But it is so present in my work and these ideas of home and displacement and longing and belonging. Like, these are the things my work is about, right? Mm -hmm. And losing connection, losing family, rebuilding that. I mean, that's that's that has a huge influence on me and my practice and just the way that I live my life like I try not to take any of these things for granted mm-hmm. and it just it breaks my heart that the, the lands of my heritage my 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 ancestral homeland is still just war torn mm-hmm. and there's so much heartbreak and so much displacement and so much destruction
1: yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I I appreciate some of what you were touching on as as we were talking about in the sense that I think people do get so reductive and they're like, well, you came good, Russia bad, like because that's and and yet of course when we say these things like we're talking like what what is a country but the people who live within it mm-hmm. who are not making the decisions mm-hmm. about where the mm-hmm. troops go and. And that it's it's possible to step back and just say, "This is a terrible thing that's happening mm-hmm. that we can all hope is over soon." And that it maybe particularly for people who have little to probably no control mm-hmm. over the outcome, like you mm-hmm. and I, would yeah. maybe doesn't need to be more complex than that if it's not, you know but it can just be like, this is, this is awful. And every single minute of every day, I wish it wasn't happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I could have, I feel a a much longer conversation on this and, Mm -hmm. and actually get, get into histories that are very complex. And that's a, that's a topic for like a whole other podcast. There's there, there's generations of war, and generations of trauma that are so complex and of course will be preyed upon Mm -hmm. and used and politicized and used in propaganda that it, it, the situation is, is just so, I mean, it's horrible. It's just, those are the kinds of things that are often manipulated and people get swept up in, Mm -hmm. in, various narratives and it's especially like in today's culture, like we like things so black and white and it's so hard to remember nuance, especially generational, like these generational traumas. And again, like, I just can't, I can't not say that just like my heart goes out to the, to the people Mm -hmm. that are involved and, and that will be, facing these hardships for their whole lives and their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives. These are the kinds of things that affect people for generations. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I feel like maybe a nice way to kind of wrap things up would be to ask you what the healer is carrying. If you're (laughs) sharing that in your series, what is the healer carrying from home? Yes. So
0: the healer has a galaxy slash vortex in the arms that is emanating from the solar plexus region. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's tying together all kinds of things. It's again, that open area where people can come and take what they need from it. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's about personal strength, it's about what we can harness from everything around us and hold on to and what can give us strength and give us healing. and that energy and that transference of, of energy and what we bring into the world and emanate around us. And the the rest of the things surrounding the healer all have, have something to do with healing, whether they're they're personal or, or medicinal or historical. Mm-hmm. There's the double-headed serpent and there's lots of plant life. There's lots of mushrooms and yes, but it is a galaxy vortex swirling out of out of the center of the figure.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's so lovely. Annalise, where can people find you and follow you online?
0: So I have a website, Annalise and social media is where you can find progress pictures and little snippets of my life and process videos will be coming of carving. And I'm publishing the next two in the series, The Healer and the Fool, this summer for oh, an exhibition that I'm excited about in the fall. So all of that information is, is readily available there. So my handle, my Instagram handle is Annalise Gritovich.
1: Beautiful. Well, we'll put both of those in the show notes. And I just want to say like like a really big, beautiful, heartfelt thank you for coming on and and talking so openly about your experience and that experience as a creative person and an artist and a creator. And I just admire you so much for – always admired you for the work that you do and for – perspective that you have where it just seems like you're learning as you go with like just a beautiful humbleness and strength that I think we need more of in the world
0: well thank you so much that means a lot to me and it's very heartening and the admiration is is definitely mutual Miranda And I feel like I spent this whole podcast talking, and I wish that you had more of an opportunity to to speak. But yes, thank you.
1: That's what you're on for. We're here here to hear you. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content, like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them hello print friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Taryn Lasgun. Taryn is a Bikani citizen and visual artist. His work centers around the process of color exploration and visual documentation of nature, cosmos, cultural narratives, and recollections of home. We'll talk about indigenous abstraction, the tradition of Bicani-painted lodges, and studying at the prestigious Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.